No, gracias, Pastora. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for gathering us. Um, it's amazing to me that wordless worship could unlock wonder, but that's what that song did the first time I heard it. It was called Faith's Hymn, and I kept waiting for the hymn. When do we sing the hymn? When's it happening? What, what are the words? How are we going to get into this? And, and yet something happened in my spirit that just settled it, that just pointed me into the presence of God. And I hope today that wonder comes through a space of looking at familiarity through a different lens. Uh, a book that's been really meaningful to me over the past couple of years is Scott Erickson, also known in the social media space as Scott the Painter. And he's got a book called Say Yes, uh, Discover the Surprising Life Beyond the Death of a Dream. And what Scott does in this uh, really beautiful moment early on is he talks about how familiarity can kill wonder. And what we need to do is to look at something familiar through a new lens. And he takes us to the artwork of an artist named Scott Lisfield. Uh, Lisfield has a series of delightful paintings, Scott writes, in which he portrays an astronaut walking around our world void of any other people. This vacant world could be a post-apocalyptic world. But nothing is destroyed, it's just empty of people and thus empty of a narrative. What's interesting is that because there are no people in the paintings, we assume then the perspective of this astronaut as a visitor. And as we move through each of the paintings, we observe something we've seen before, but we're doing so not with our filter, but through the eyes of a filter of a visitor who perhaps is seeing these things for the first time. So taking these images of the familiar, and wondering how does this person who has come here from somewhere far away, it seems, how are they interpreting what they're seeing? How are they seeing something that maybe is so familiar to us, but perhaps they're seeing it so new for the first time. And yes, I would love a donut right about now. Familiarity can kill wonder. And so the invitation is to look at stuff that maybe is particularly familiar to us, but invite us to see it anew. Today, we're going to look at one of the most familiar passages in all of the scriptures, and I hope that through our time together, uh, what we're going to practice is a communal reading, a communal interpretation, a communal uh, looking anew to find wonder in the familiar, but to do so together. And so kind of in a Lectio Divina type format, we'll walk through it a few different times. We'll pause with some reflective prompts and questions along the way. And then hopefully um, we'll get some space to hear and to listen from one another in a way that allows ourselves uh, to see something anew. And so this first prompt that I want you to sit with um, before we get to the passage is how has this story personally spoken to you over the years? And what is resonating with you today on a personal level? Um, those two questions, how has the story personally spoken to you over the years? A very familiar story. And then what is resonating with you today on a personal level? And so we'll come back to those questions in just a moment, but I wanted you to have them so that you could be thinking through this as we're coming to the passage already. All right, my sister uh, Sadae and I are gonna take turns reading this passage. And Sadae, let's just go back and forth on these slides as they come up and we'll just take turns reading. Okay. Luke chapter 15, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sadi. Thank you. So the question that we were sitting with right here at the beginning is this question of how has this spoken to you personally over the years? And what is resonating with you today on a personal level? Um, we're going to have some time, hopefully, to hear our voices in just a moment. But before we get to that prompt, I want us to just sit in the chat for a minute. So let's just write our responses in the chat together. How has the story personally spoken to you over the years? What's resonating with you today on a personal level? Um, it's a very familiar story. So I imagine there's going to be some familiar responses for us to sit with as we engage, as we sit with it, as we look at it together. Um, how has the story spoken to you? Let's just take a moment. I'll pause. I'll take a step back and let's just listen to the chat for a second as people begin to share some responses. How has it spoken to you over the years? What's something that's resonating personally with you today? I love that, Doug. That's a beautiful image. I heard a talk about walking around wearing the father's robe and the father's ring. And I've often imagined myself walking in God's clothes. Janet writes, the grace of God, that God is always willing to celebrate us. 
Inez writes, for years, I've always been drawn to the unapologetic father who runs and kisses his son without shame. I love imagining that God runs and embraces me with extravagant love. Sandy, I identified with the older son in my younger years, the sense of that's not fair. Now I'm more focused on the father's generosity and kindness. It's beautiful. Rocio, I've often found myself relating to the resentment of the older brother and God's reminder that he's always with me. I love that, Rocio. I've always been with you every day. Stephanie, God's grace when we make mistakes. Caleb, the story takes a different form every time I read it. Today, the father's response to the second brother sits with me. Everything I have is already yours. That reminds me of Rocio's word. God's reminder, he's always with us. Jennifer, in the past, I learned about not being at the angry goat table as the older brother. <laughs> now I love the image of the father running. That's what Pastora said. Helping me see I will be met rather than needing to be perfect. These are beautiful thoughts, beautiful images. I'm going to allow them to just continue to sit in the chat for a moment. And as we do that, uh, I want to turn our, our lens just a little bit to see something that maybe allows us to see something just in a little bit of a different angle. Um, Mark Allen Powell, uh, theologian and writer, uh, he took this passage and he took this story and he allowed different people to read it in different contexts. And he gave them a very simple exercise. He said, I want you to pair off in groups and I want you to read the story. And then I want you to close the books. And then I want you to take turns to tell the story back as faithfully as you can, just based on your memory of what you just read. And he wanted to listen to what different people highlighted in the story as they reflected it back to them. And then after they did that, just take real notes of what the other person shared and then go back and look to see the story. How, how close did you get to the details that were present in the story or not? And so he first began with U.S. American seminary students and they read the text carefully. Then they recounted it from memory to 12 partners. And he just noticed one small detail that really just surprised him. He said, I noticed that not one of them mentioned the famine to which Jesus refers to in verse 14, that there's this famine that happens in the story. And he said, it was just interesting. Like nobody mentioned the famine as they retold the story. Um, he's like, is there something, is there something about that? Um, all of them forgot the famine. So he said, I organized a more controlled study involving 100 students, overachiever. And then only six of them would mention the famine in their oral recounting of the story. And these famine forgetters that he called them, they comprised students of diverse gender and race and age and economic status and religious affiliation. There was no single factor of social location that seemed to have any statistically relevant impact on the likelihood that they would or would not remember the famine, but they all did. And then he said, of course, all 100 of the respondents were US American students. And so he just began to wonder, huh, I wonder if I surveyed non-American readers, what would happen? And so he took this with him on a sabbatical journey that he had in Eastern Europe. And there he pulled diverse respondents in St. Petersburg, Russia. He said, I was only able to access a sample one half the size of that in the US. There were 50 total respondents as opposed to hundred, but catch this, a shocking 42 of 50 students specifically mentioned the famine when they retold the story that they had just been asked to read. So I don't know, six of a hundred and now 42 of a hundred 
highlighted the famine. And he said, okay, something's going on here. There is a social factor in the story and how we come to the text and how we read it that only six out of 100 U.S., but 42 out of 50 does it. And then he said, huh, I think the answer might be closer than I realize. One probably does not need to look too far for a social or psychological explanation for the data he received in Russia. In 1941, the German army laid siege on the city of St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, and subjected its inhabitants to what was in effect a 900-day famine. During that time, 670,000 people died of starvation and exposure, about one-fourth of the total population. Some of the current inhabitants of the city are survivors of that horror. More are descendants of survivors. Other residents represent a new generation of immigrants, but even for those, a collective memory remains. And even in modern St. Petersburg, typical social issues like abortion and care of the elderly and imprisonment of lawbreakers and socialized medicine are often considered through the lens of, but what if there is not enough food? That lens of starvation and famine still made an impact in how people thought about social issues of their day. So it's not surprising then that these students, more than four-fifths of the people in Russia who read the story would mention the famine. And that the famine alone um, is, is the highlight of the story for them, grounds us in something of the reality of their day and their time. Furthermore, here's a couple more pieces that he brought to the table. He said, I have not heard many American sermons that portray the prodigal as a famine victim. More often, the story is regarded as a paradigm for repentance. The boy comes to himself and determines to go home telling his father, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. Um, but the Russian students, as they read the story, they said the boy's mistake was not how he spent his money and squandered it, or even how he lost it. The Russian student said this, the boy's mistake was leaving his father's house in the first place. His sin was placing a price tag on the value of his family, thinking that money was all he needed from them. His sin was wanting to be self-sufficient. When he told them about the American students, this prompted a further discussion. Um, they said, how revealing it is that Americans think the great sin is wasting money. They think that because money is very important to them. In a capitalist country, it must be a very bad thing to squander one's inheritance. But in a socialist state, the sin is self-sufficiency. And so just based on a social location, we have these two completely different readings where all of a sudden familiarity um, gets moved to the side and wonder begins to rise from the text. Wonder begins to rise from the surface. In a moment, I would love for us to think about our stories, our social locations, our cultural experiences, our lived day-to-day, -day, our memory, our muscle memory, our cultural memory, our social memory, how we've grown up, the neighborhoods, the smells, the sights, the sounds. And we'll go through the text again. And this time, I want you to take that context into the story. And maybe today, there would be something unfamiliar that would bring wonder out from the text. And then we'll take some time to share. But before that, let me give you one more quick example. He said, okay, I've talked to US American students and I've talked to Russian students. I'm gonna take this with me the next time I take one of my trips to Africa. And so as he went to Tanzania in East Africa, he was curious to hear how they would respond to the story. 
And he asked the question, why does the young man end up starving in the pig pen? I was curious to see how many would write because he wasted his money or how many would write because there was a famine. And a few responses like that, but the vast majority, around 80% wrote something completely different. They said he ended up in the pig pen because no one gave him anything to eat. Because no one gave him anything to eat. He pressed the matter with the students. Why should anyone give him anything? Wasn't it his fault that he squandered his money? And they told me that this was a very callous perspective. The boy was in a far country. Immigrants often lose their money. They don't know how things work in a new environment. And so they might spend all their money when they shouldn't because they don't know about famines that might come in the new land. People think that they are fools just because they don't know how to live in that country. But the Bible commands us to care for the stranger and the alien in our midst. And it is a lack of hospitality not to do so. This story, the Tanzanians told me, is less about personal repentance than it is about society and about the kingdom of God. Everyone who heard this parable in their context in East Africa would be shocked by such a depiction of such a society. A country that would let a stranger go hungry and not give him anything to eat. And a central point of the parable is that the scribes and the Pharisees can be just like that. All right, let's sit with this for just a moment. <clears throat> so here's your prompt. How does this story speak to you on a communal level? In what ways does the story resonate with your lived social experience? I'll leave the questions there for just a moment and then Sarai and I will go back and read through the passage. How does the story speak to you on a communal level? In what ways does it resonate with your, and I will just highlight your, your lived social experience. Is there something that maybe pops off the page? Like a visitor going to somewhere and seeing something anew for the first time. Also, after this reading, I want to, instead of just opening up the chat, I would love to hear some of our voices. Uh, so we'll come back together and we'll take a moment and we'll raise our hands and, and we'll see who would like to share something that maybe resonates off the, off the story for just a moment. All right. Sadi, let me pull up this story again and let's read it through one more time. Okay. And let's see what resonates with us today. Sadi, why don't you take the first one this time and then do, I'll go. Do you want me to read the bigger chunks? <laughs> Got it. You okay. <clears throat> Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For his son of mine, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was still in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. So our question to sit with. How does the story speak to you on a communal level? In what ways does it resonate with your lived social experience? <clears throat> so in the same way that the story would speak to East Africans, would speak to those in St. Petersburg, even years after famine, how does it speak to you? How does it speak to us? If you have a response that you'd love to share in person or in person, um, you can raise your hand and we'd love to unmute and hear your voice. If you have something you'd like to offer into the chat, we can do that as well. You can continue to utilize the chat and just write your responses there. Sada E, why don't you go ahead? So I have to share that I sat with this throughout the week and I did some homework because I knew I was going to do the reading. Um, it's a bit unfair, but um, I wanted to make a connection of something I heard in a sermon a while back. Um, they made a connection between Deuteronomy I always say this, Deuteronomy 21, 18, 21, where it explains that in that time, if a rebellious son left, the culture was if he returned, the elders within that com of that community would stone, um, stone the disobedient son, the rebellious son. And one of the biggest and most important pictures that 
um, as I imagined and I read it throughout the week, was that the father, yes, I, I think a few people mentioned the father running to him, but I feel that the the context made the difference that the father ran to him knowing that he was supposed to be stoned. And to me, I feel in a way to protect him, to show him love, to embrace him. And, and that context for me was, it just showed how much more God loves us and how much more God is willing to go against what's going wrong as long as I am protected and I am the one lost rebellious son and I'm making my way back. God is open to embracing me and running toward me. Like that's how worthy I am of his love. So I wanted to just put that out there. <laughs> that's beautiful. Thank you, sis. Yeah. You know. oh, okay. <laughs> I'll go real fast just because we're unmuted and then we'll pass off. Um, I think I've always loved the story because it rings true to me for how I see God and that um, so many of the things that people kind of point to in the Bible that maybe show a different kind of God are, you know, don't ring true to me. And, but this one is like, God's extravagant love toward us and never ending, no condemnation, all the things. And um, the things I'm sitting with today are, I think, just an image of God turning his face toward us. Um, just the, just that image, really. And that I think the Jesus Storybook Bible, I will say, for anyone who's never read it <laughs> for kids, Jesus Storybook Bible has some beautiful imagery in it. And one of the things it talks about was how, you know, the father sitting out on the front porch every day, waiting, looking, watching, you know, and that image to me is so strong because um, it's kind of that idea of there was never a moment when God wasn't, or when the father wasn't looking for his son. And today, as it was being read, I was remembering my grandparents um, and their house to me, it was always like just kind of the seat of unconditional love, you know, and they would always, be on the porch when we get there and be waving us off, you know, from the porch when we leave. And that's such a beautiful image to me. And I just was thinking about that today, just that like warmth um, and even more of a warmth, more than warmth, the, the like extravagant, unconditional love. And um, I could keep going. I'm reminding, uh, reminded of a lot of Bible stories that are, you know, speak to this kind of extravagant love, Jacob and Esau or David dancing and, his wife, you know, upset yeah. about it and all the things that could kind of make connections. But I even saw at the very end of the story on this last reading, the idea that the older son wasn't, he didn't come in the party and accuse the dad or whatever, but the dad actually left the party to come find the older son. And so like his face turned toward the younger son, looking for him, waiting, watching, but also always looking for the older son too. And just the proactive kind of, that's the kind of guy we have. So I think I've always loved the story because it, resonates with how I feel about God, who I know God to be. That's beautiful. And if you come to our home, Amy will follow you out the door when you leave and wave to you from the porch as you drive away because she learned that from her grandparents. Um, that's really beautiful. Sandy, I'd love to hear from you. Um, what I was thinking about was um, just a, like more from a Korean um, perspective of the the view of elders versus sons and how it I think um 
I think it's probably more similar to more like the Jewish culture where, uh, you know, the elders are very highly regarded and the thought that a, a child or a son would, would treat his father this way is kind of an anathema and, um, you know, just, so I think in that sense, that's partly why I resonate strongly with the older son of like, this little punk doesn't get to deserve to be your son anymore. He like, he just disrespected, you know, Appa, like, don't let him ever come back to the house. Mm-hmm. So I think there is that sense of like, it's not that he is just doing his own independent thing, but he just brought great shame upon the whole family and upon the the dad and the whole family to just take off like that. So that's, I think, um, yeah, because I think a lot of times when I've heard this Bible study with uh, sort of more white American folks, they more notice the individual. Well, he had his own individual choice and stuff, but I think I always resonate more with the communal impact on the whole family to have this kid just take off like that and why the older brother might be more like he doesn't deserve to get back, you know, kind of a thing. So, um, so yeah, I think that's the communal impact part that I, uh, I think I really struggled with it when I first learned this passage because I, I learned it more as an adult and I, I was like, this kid doesn't deserve it. <laughs> I was sort of harsh, like the older son because of the impact, you know, on the whole group. So that's what was striking to me. Thank you, Sandy. Which makes the, you know, the graciousness of the dad even more crazy and unexpected and, uh, you know, just, yeah, incredibly forgiving. Yeah, that word prodigal is always attached to the son, but that word just means extravagant, even recklessly so. Uh, So really, that's where we get that imagery for a love of God that is prodigal, that is extravagant. Um, Those sons deserve to backhand, uh, (laughs) even culturally. Um, you know, the father just opened the hand and just loved them right where they are. Oh, yeah. Juin, you have something? We'd love to see, we'd love to hear from you. Can you unmute on your end? Yeah, sorry. I'm not technologically like... Okay, you're great. You're great. Go ahead. So I'm just doing it like manually. <laughs> um, uh, I just wanted to... Sh- I just really appreciated just the different perspectives. I mean... You and both, uh, you, Pastor Bobby and Pastor Ardenas, every time you preach, I don't know. Like, my mom's a preacher. Like, I've preached for years. My dad's a preacher. So, but y'all, I, I always cry every time you guys just, I, I don't know if I could say you're freaking gifted. So that's what that, but that's not what I wanted to share. <laughs> I wanted to say that d- just the different perspectives that you shared today from Russia and from Tanzania helped me just develop um a more three-dimensional appreciation for the younger son. I think till now it's probably been more two-dimensional. That's how it feels like because we like we try to categorize and put people in categories. And even when, you know, even we do that in pastoral counseling, someone comes and shares, oh, I've struggled with this and I've been resentful towards God. Oh, sounds like you were the older son. You know, it's a very binary thing often and 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 we're really quick to categorize and 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 and, and diagnose. Um, but I just appreciated just the it grew my a compa- more more compassion for the younger son. The perspectives that you shared made it more humane. He he became more human humane to me, and I also uh, what stood out one thing and even was where the father says, you know, let's celebrate because he was lost but found. Um, I think many times when we read the story, it's like 
you know, the son is the one who came back. The son is the one who who did the doing. Um, but and so it just the story makes the foreign country and where he went off to look so big and the home so small. You know, it's like it was all the onus was on the son to do, do, do. But the father, when the father says he was lost but found, like who did the finding? And 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 I think. I don't know. It just expanded my view of that home of God's kingdom, you know, and 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 um, you know that God is just in this constant pursuit of us. I think you know because we often see it as a son coming back from afar and the father just sitting there and waiting, but but it's not. I think the case, which reminds me of Psalm twenty three six. Um, you know, uh, all all the days of my life, like your your love your love and mercy shall follow me, and I love that Hebrew word is like. You know, follow is not follow, but it's pursuing like a lion pursues its prey, and just how God pursues us strongly. So, mm. Mm. that's so beautiful. Thank you. I think Caleb mentioned it early on, but just the story. Every time you sit with it, something new arises, um, and I think we're having that experience. Mike would love to hear from you, or Mike and Janet. Are we on? Yeah. Um, uh, Amy brought up the celebration part, the music part, and uh, it um, jumps out at me that uh, the brother that um, couldn't really be involved in the celebration just moves right past it, and he can't get into the joy. He can't. He can't feel the celebration. Here it is. There's there is a celebration. There is joy. There is is the music of of celebration. Um, you know, deep emotional things that are uh, being shared. And there's got to be more than just just the dad and just the other other guy. There's there's musicians. There's others that that are there at that place. So communally, there's a celebration. There's joy, but he just can't. He can't be. He can't. Can't do it. It. It can't. It can't get to him, because there's a hardness. There's a stiffness. There's a something that's uh, that's holding him back, and um, he can't join in and uh, explains, you know, what what his problem is. But I think all of us, from time to time, there's always comes some time when each of us can't can't join in. There's some some kind of a an issue, a worry, a fear, something's been done to us or that we're involved in and we can't we can't feel the joy either. And we may judge others who who are able to be celebrating. But um anyway, that just stood out to me. Thank you, Mike. Gusto Gonzalez, um my compañera gave me this book years ago. And one of the things he alludes to at the end is that three parables in Luke 15 all end in joy. And that that's really where the culmination and the, and the resolve is. And that he says this line at the end, a gospel without joy is no gospel. That's not good news. Um, and so the highlighting of joy there, I think, is really particularly special. Jennifer, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I feel like my mind is being blown by all of the different perspectives. Um, as soon as you were sharing, Bobby, just how you know students would recount this story, I was thinking, how have I told this story? And I definitely focus on 
you know, he squandered all his money and then this unfortunate thing happened and he had to go home. And so even when you were talking about the famine, I'm like, yeah, I think if I were quizzed, I don't know if I would confidently say, yeah, the famine happened. My mind doesn't think of that. And so I think that really um, challenged me. And then even the the, the communal part, <laughs> like, yeah, he didn't have anything to eat because they didn't give him anything. And I'm like, wow, like, how do I overlook the the relationships and the context? Like, and I think in the story, but I think I'm gonna have to sit with that as well. And I, when I listened to it the second time, I was trying to listen for more of like the context and the relationships and also noticing how I really think in an independent Westernized way, how it's his fault, obviously that he didn't know, even if he's in another country, he should know to mm -hmm. be independent and take care of himself. Right. And so I think I need to sit with that. So when I was listening to the story, I felt like, you know, the independence, like wanting, like to take care of yourself, like he, the son is wanting a role and not a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like he's like, okay, like this is the role of the son. And then he's like, well, I don't deserve this role. So I'm going to be a servant now. Like I've lost the role and it's mm -hmm. like he wants access to like the food. Like this is like very transactional, but the father's like, no, like he runs to his son. He sees hugs his son. It's like, you are my son. It's inherent who he is. And I felt like it's like, you know, this like life focus, like you're alive, you're here, like you are you versus like this deficit focus, like you made a mistake, you've lost it somehow. And I just felt like it really just, yeah, I think it it's challenging me to, mm. to see the importance of just the, the context and the communal and the relationship that is inherent to who we are and that we live in day to day and not just examining ourselves which I think we're, we, I guess we are really good at and, and the head that part versus like the experience of like being who we are, like in the communities that we have and the families that we have and being able to receive that. Yeah. I'm going to sit with that. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, Nicola, I think your question uh, feels like that moment in Mark that you talked about where there's something unresolved. There's a tension in the story. And we're supposed to sit in the tension. Um, certainly in the other two parables before that, a coin is lost and it's sought after. Sheep is lost and it's sought after. A son is lost. And is it sought after? Is he sought after? Well, the other son's lost. Is he sought after? What, what is that? What does that look like in the middle of all of that? Um, Jennifer, I loved that line. And, and Ines highlighted it here to um, the role and relationship aspect, even the self-speak that he was going to before he even went back into that encounter uh, was just settling for something less than. Uh, I wanna highlight Andre's words. Andre, so good to have you here, my friend. Um, he wrote, what about the courage to leave home, to see beyond what you're given? What did the father sowed in his early development? I think deep down the son knew his father had his back. Never had that thought in my life. <laughs> Never had that thought in my life. That's the first time I've ever thought of that. Uh, Mindy, did you have your hand raised? Yes. I'd love to hear from you, sis. Um, I was just thinking about, I don't, I've been met, like thinking a lot about like um, legalism in the church and like, you know, what's the right reading? What's the right interpretation of a passage? And so something that came up as you read the different, the research about different communities take on it was just like the bigness of God and how like it's all of those things, right? Like it's not like, you know, one of those is more 
Right. I mean, one of them or two of them might be closer to the context, uh, the historical context, you know, um, probably agrarian, um, probably like an understanding of famine. But I love that, like, as a earth community, we are all adding to the interpretation and that it like that's what gets closer to a truer understanding of God. And that's I'm. it's kind of cheesy, but I always tell my math educators that like the smartest person in the room is the room. Like you want to have as many students share as many different strategies as possible because they learn so much from each other. And so I just, it just makes me think about like biblical interpretation and how um, like if we could be more expansive, then we're getting like more truth and we're getting closer rather than farther away. Yeah. I've, I've certainly been in spaces where there was going to have to be a right answer to this story. There was going to have to be an interpretation, the correct one. And we're not leaving this room until we find it and agree upon it. Um, and most of us would probably leave disappointed um, because it didn't resonate with something in our spirit or our story or our soul. But instead, that idea of the room, that's that's gorgeous. I'm I'm going to borrow that, put that in my back pocket. Thank you. Uh, Justo Gonzalez says this. Um, and if there's one more response, let's do one more. Uh, and then we'll we'll shift into communion. He says here again. How we interpret the parable and apply it to ourselves depends on what we assume to be our role in the cast of characters. So how we interpret it depends on what our role is and what we see ourselves to be. I'll share one brief story and then Rosia, we'd love for you to have the last word here in our interpretation, our communal reading of the text. Um, I got a message from one of my friends this week and he had been in the Southern Baptist Church his whole life. Uh, we met years ago at one of our move stops along the way. And as I began to have this uh, more expansive imagination of women in all levels of leadership in the church, we would just dialogue. We would just talk about it. Now for him in the SBC, this was so taboo. Uh, this was the kind of stuff that you're not allowed to even really think about or talk about or interpret. But he would just ask really slow questions. I'm sure there were moments as I began to share with him this dream of our church and who we were aiming to be. I'm sure there were moments where he wondered if I was a son that had ran off and done something crazy. And I'm sure there were moments too, where I thought maybe you are being a son that has squandered the truth and you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the others thought, well, I'm the older brother and now you're the older brother. And so this role of which character is playing who depends on where we are in the center of that story. Um, but I had a really sweet moment this week. He said a conversation we had two years ago, I've just been sitting with for two years because you were willing to just talk to me about it. He says, I've left the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I am advocating for women in all levels of leadership. And it's because we were just able to have the conversation and not push each other away and not demand that one of us had to be right and not say you did this or you did this, that we were able to just be at the table together and because we were able to be at the table together, we could be at the party together. We could be at the celebration together. This week when he reached out to me, it was able to be a joy together. Um, not that he was lost and is found, but it was a bigger, it was a bigger picture that something that we had held that maybe wasn't something we could share, was now something that we could celebrate together. And it was really, really sweet and really special. Rocio, would love to hear from you. Yeah, something that was new that stuck out to me is that usually I think about like like the father's grace toward the younger son and God's grace toward us when we 
squander things or leave or whatever. But then like God has the father has so much grace for the older son, too. So I was just thinking, like, no matter what our response or reaction, whether like to run away or resentment or whatever it may be, like there seems to be grace no matter what the reaction was. That's a big word. And in the story, it's a tangible word. It's not like just an idea of grace. It's an expression of grace that we get to see in real time, real moments. Um, it is an expansive invitation. And I hope that that's something that you sit with today. I hope grace expanded our understanding of the story. And, and I hope that something else, maybe unnamed, happened today. Um, I just want to acknowledge as one of the pastors of our church that we can have a hard relationship with this book, that we can look at this book and it can have had experiences in our life where our experience with this and with others has caused pain and has caused harm um, or spaces we have been in opening this together has not felt safe. And that has created spaces where we've not even wanted to open it on our own anymore. I just want to hold the attention of that and, and even honor the pain of that. Um, but I hope today also, even if for just a moment, expanded and opened this up in such a way that we could come to it with sanctuary together. And then maybe there would be wonder here again. Maybe this has something to say about our worlds and our famines um, and our inefficiency to be self-sufficient that we're not supposed to be in the first place. And that maybe the story speaks to that as well. Um, so hopefully even the word itself, that there was some wonder that was able to just be cultivated in this shared space together.